Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part two of my conversation with four different members of the Digital Ethics Task Force at ABLE. The Association for Authentic, Experiential, and Evidence-Based Learning. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I like it as a roadmap for, uh, for because they actually break down each aspect of that acronym. They define diversity, they define equity, they talk about how that would look in practice. And within my, my own work, I just wanted to give the example of working with some uh, various programs that have things like uh, top e-portfolio competitions. And uh, the portfolios that were getting selected were fairly homogenous. Um, and, uh, you know, we could talk about access, we can talk about reader preference, but I was able to open up this page and talk about, okay, what languages are we privileging and why? Um, when you say that hairstyle's not appropriate, is that reflective of the student's work and learning? Is that part of our rubric? When you don't like the font they've used, how are they using that to reflect disciplinary discussions, et cetera? And it, it kind of gave them a space to, a lead line to think through what, what is it we're really reviewing and rewarding and prioritizing. And out of that, I will tell you, the calibrations were much tighter and the top portfolios that started being picked uh, certainly reflected the population we were uh, dealing with far more accurately instead of kind of privileging people's personal preference uh, for sameness or for familiarity uh, to recognize the rhetorical moves those students were doing and valuing them. Um, so, so, but I, I opened this page, <laughs> just walked them through and said, well, let's talk about these concerns and how might we be replicating harm when we're using um, assumptions we haven't explored in how we evaluate. So, and then those are the models we share with students at our university as these are exemplars. So they should uh, be uh, rated fairly. So, yeah, and I was just going to, I love, I was I just going to jump in so to say much. also oh, that um, for principles that maybe people have not worked with or haven't had a chance to think about or are new to them, one of the things that I particularly love um, about all of the work that was done before I joined um, the task force is that it's not just the language of the principles, right? In connection with the language of the principles, there are also these very clear, very concrete, very accessible um, case studies that are used in connection with the principle. And I've found already um, that that is a great way to invite people into the conversation and then walk them over to the principles, right? But so you start with this, you know, this case study, which is, I think, a more fun way in some ways to like get in and think about what's happening, how would I handle this? What does it look like? And then connect that to the principle. Um, so I, I particularly appreciate the way that the language of the principles works in connection with the case studies. And I think it, it also foregrounds empathy. Like when you when you do the case study, you kind of put yourself in that person's shoes. It may be yours, it may be the students, it may be a colleague's, and then you think, oh, that's how they're experiencing this issue. You know, I love that um, all of these principles. You know, the examples that you all gave were just so awesome. But like they also sort of go back to you know and en enhancing mm -hmm. the portfolio sort of pedagogy as well. So it's not like 
you know, like we started with this and then we had these principles and then they just mm-hmm. went on, went off and do their own thing. So I was looking at, you know, these, um, portfolio and I was just so blown, you know, blown away by, by them because in the recent couple of years, I must say that, um, in parallel, I'm seeing portfolios that are not done, for example, mm-hmm. purely for assessment purposes. They're no longer necessarily just doing a program portfolio. They might be doing a portfolio for, you know, really just for self-expression. And it's for students to find a purpose and a mission in life or in the, currently what's, you know, what's, what's difficult for them that they're trying to solve, right? And these are, I think, just awesome, empathic way of in you know, helping a student or making their experience better, regardless of whether you're using a portfolio and regardless of whether you're looking at this one principle, you know? And I just love that all of these things, all of these things that you talk about, whether it be access, DIBD, you know, bring bring the student, just result in in a in a better experience and open up um, mm-hmm. a net that's much wider than what I felt like. I must say that maybe for 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 some institutions i know that for for a period of time uh, assessment for example becomes such a dominating force not that it's really like a bad thing but it's so dominating that sometimes you know if you do portfolio you have to do this assessment thing whether that was going to really help your students in your classroom today and that sometimes you know feels like that you know what you are doing is bringing bringing that perspective, you know, in back into the work too, which I think is lovely. I mean, you're making this uh, English instructor's heart glad because there's multiple genres of e-portfolio. It's a mode of composition. So audience purpose, all of that comes in. Please don't tell ODU this is a writing composition rhetoric initiative. <laughs> but I mean, it is. And we're seeing students being very cognizant that they don't really get to sidestep um complex digital identities in the way that we maybe have been able to do for for a while. Um, They're aware that they need to have these multimodal synthesized identities that make sense online, that LinkedIn and their coursework and their social media. And um, I know, like talking about if it's assessment driven or um, sometimes we see it kind of depicted as a career prep, it's a glorified resume, um, you know, so all of that, these principles at least kind of point back to that because it's a, an act of, of persuasion, uh, it's a genre, you know, a wide set of genres, um, students can do a lot, faculty can do a lot with them. And um, the issues they may encounter may shift depending on the purpose of that portfolio. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll finish talking here about the fact that, you know, I'm in a heavily military area. So when they talk about professional portfolios, there's a lot of stuff our students actually can't share or they may be on NDAs or they may be working with the government. Uh, and so we have to think very carefully about when we glowingly talk about showcasing your work, um, we have to get creative. Uh, we have to think about what that might, uh, they might have to use hypotheticals and, and parallel projects. But all that to say is the genre dictates the problem that you might have to solve. And we want to make sure that we give folks a couple different ways to come at those. Yeah. That's really good. Um, I wanted to, um, I know that uh, several of you had talked about access. So I don't know. <laughs> that's a crazy hard question. Yes, <laughs> it is. Like really, that's a crazy hard question, and and 
you know, obviously there is the technology and the, you know, the, the, the just access to equipment, to software and then to, you know, internet, you know, connectivity at a minimum. But Liz, you had mentioned before, do you have a space, you know, to do these things? Um, for example, you know, because we're doing multimedia, we're doing like video chat right now, but, you know, many students I know would mm-hmm. say, I, I can't show you my house. Um, I don't want you to see it. Um, Right. Uh, so what can you can you tell me a little bit of like where that is? Does that is, is you know, because that that seemed to have been um, a big deal for you, Liz. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this conversation is really important right now because although many, many institutions have moved back on campus, the flexibility and um ease of multiple modalities, I think, has been attractive to faculty, to staff, and to students. So it's an ongoing conversation. So um, we can't just sort of bracket it as we don't have to think about that anymore because we're back on campus. Instead, all of these issues persist. So the question is, how do we, um, as institutions, how do we, as a field, how do we in conversation with one another, really shape our discussions and understanding of access to tech, of accessibility. Um, So, you know, I feel like this was really a pressure point for us at LaGuardia during the pandemic. And we stayed online longer than a lot of other institutions. So traditionally, our response to access has been to make sure that we had fully staffed computer labs, we had staff that was available. Um, If students needed help, there were spaces, not just one space, but multiple spaces where they could get uh, real-time help. And while our ePortfolio staff did a phenomenal job throughout the pandemic in offering all kinds of different support, synchronous, asynchronous, um, they they really just did a spectacular job. Um, you know, it, it was challenging because students didn't have devices and they didn't have spaces to work. And there were privacy issues around who was in their home, where their home was, whether or not they wanted, you know, us viewing into their home. Um and internet was a huge issue, right? Did they have broadband? Um, did I, you know, I taught a class and I had a student who was trying to hotspot off her phone sitting in the hallway because that was where of her building on the stairway because that was where her, her signal was strongest. And she would turn her camera on, but I would see her like kind of curled up on the steps and people are coming up and down and, you know, carrying groceries. Um, and this was, this was class time. This wasn't even like producing the portfolio. So I think it's certainly something that I have continued to think a lot about. I'm grateful that we're back on campus so that we can do more real-time in-person support, which seems um, to be helpful to many of our students. Certainly not all of our students need that. Um, But I think we have a lot to learn about how to support students um, who do not have physical access to devices, internet, who do not have knowledge uh, um, of how to use these digital devices in a sophisticated way. And, you know, I think 
the principles really plays into that because when we talk about the principles, we're talking about the fact that this isn't just about like assigning an e-portfolio and then wishing your students well and grading it at the end of the semester, right? If you're going to do this in a mindful way, it involves all kinds of support. And now we have this extra layer. So what happens if you're trying to support students doing e-portfolio and you're teaching an asynchronous course, right? So I think... I don't have any answers to this yet. I think this is something that institutions are really exploring and thinking about um, and trying to decide what it looks like. But, you know, there was this like period of time um, where the digital divide, like we stopped talking about it as if it didn't exist, right? And we like lived in this utopia where everyone had access to the magical internet and everything was perfect and technology was going to fix everything. Um, and, you know, I mean, the digital, if COVID taught us nothing, I mean, COVID taught us lots of things, but if it taught us nothing really well, it should be that the digital divide is abundantly <laughs> clear and very present. Um, so we definitely, as an, an issue of equity, need to ensure that our students are having access um, to the same kinds of experiences, no matter what sort of institution they attend. And that we are fully supporting them in those endeavors because certainly we want a digitally literate citizenry um, because it will just benefit all of us. Doesn't it feel like, I mean, not, I mean, obviously the in, each institution is doing their parts, you know, to make this all work, but doesn't it feel so much like a, um, you know, um, the, the access to internet, for example, has evolved into really a right that we should have because the, you can't survive today without it. You know, there are places. You know, like you, you know, like there are there are there are there are areas um, where because you don't have internet, you may not get healthcare. You may not get the, the ability to you know just get licenses for doing things for even driving. Because you are not having, you know, access um, to do basic, what we would consider basic things in life today. Not luxury, not even Netflix and, you know, Amazon Prime, you know, delivery or whatnot. You know, we're talking about, you know, fairly, you know, basic, you know, human needs now. Jeff for president, you guys. Uh, <laughs> um, well, and I wanted to to also, you know, Liz's points about uh, access during the pandemic and beyond are really good. And I would also just highlight many of us for years have been pointing out that so many of our students uh, are using mobile devices for accessing schoolwork and composing schoolwork. And I think that uh, while maybe a group of us knew that before the pandemic, I think the pandemic made it really quite clear uh, that that is a huge norm. And of course, um, you know, you look at the way Google privileges mobile responsive uh, sites and things like that, that is it's a continuing trend. All of that to say is that if we think about the fact that our students may likely be building portfolios on mobile devices, that might also change the way we design that assignment. Uh, maybe they don't need a 26-page website. Maybe they need a one-pager of sections that scrolls, you know. And so even that conversation, having a principle that, that can help um, someone who's new being like, my student's on a mobile, mobile device building this website, what can I do? It's like, oh, well, people have already kind of tackled that problem because it's not a new problem. It's an old problem because the digital divide is really the next class divide. So, you know, as you kind of point out. Well, and the other thing, I, 
not specifically related to the principles, but more widespread kind of related to the sort of society that we want to live in. I also think that when we talk about the digital divide and the generational divide, that because so many people were working from home, we had exposure to neighbors who maybe we didn't normally run into and we didn't see, um, you know, and everyone has a story, right? Like I have an elderly neighbor who was dealing with a non-COVID health condition and couldn't go to the doctor and could not figure out telehealth, um, right? So I'm like standing in our stairway because I didn't, this was early on, right? Wearing a mask, <laughs> not wanting to be close to her, trying to, you know, coach her through how to get onto Teladoc. Um, and I think thinking about oh, wow. that and thinking about how we help our students not only have those skills, but have those skills to help others because oh, while many of us are just dealing with college students of all different ages. Um, this certainly extends beyond that when we think about our students' families and the communities where they live. Yeah, great yeah, point. I, I, yeah, I, everything you all are saying, I just wanted to follow up because I, that was the first thing. I mean, I teach at Appalachian State University and I chose to come back and work at this place. I guess now I teach and do administrative work, but I, because I'm from East Tennessee. Um, and so when, when um, vaccine, when the first vaccines became available, I was trying to get my dad to to register to get one. And the first thing I thought when every, they sent everybody home and, and faculty, I mean, even on my campus, faculty were being told to go to the parking deck next to the football stadium if they didn't have um, internet at their house, which some did not if they needed to get on the campus internet. So there were faculty sitting in their cars in a parking deck, um, zooming with their students or grading assignments um, because they didn't have internet at their house and it's the mountains. So it's hard, like hotspots. They were trying to give people hotspots, but that's very, very difficult. We don't have a lot of good cell phone coverage. Um, and, and, but people kept saying, oh, my students say they don't have this connection or that connection. And the first thing I thought of was, I, I wouldn't, if I had just been sent back to the house I grew up in, um, there's not internet there. It doesn't exist. And my dad has a flip phone. Um, and yeah, that was a huge problem, like trying to get him registered to get a, a vaccine. And again, we're right on the border um, with one of the poorest counties in the country in East Tennessee. And people, when they started rolling out vaccines, the people in my county where we didn't have enough were like, oh, we're going to cross the line to go over here because these backwoods holler people that won't take the vaccine. They made it really political. And I remember talking to somebody and being like, are you sure they're anti-vaccine or can they, do they not have a way to register to sign? Like everything was being done online and the data shows that there's very little internet connection in homes, right? In that county. And so it just really it upsets me a lot because it gets into people like make it about political divides. And I think I'm not sure it's always about that as much as it is about access and comfort because that the expectation that we're shown in the media is that everybody has access to these things. And so particularly generationally, people don't want to ask for help because they don't want to acknowledge that they don't have access to that or know how to use it. Um, so I, yeah, anything we can do to help break down that sort of barrier and the language around the kind of judgment around it, I think is a major digital ethical concern for the future. 
Yeah. And Sarah, I just want to add to that. I mean, I'm teaching in Long Island City, which is right part of New York City, and students are having access issues. Right. Um, so there every- are lots <laughs> of access issues in upstate New York, right? So just even within the state itself. Mm-hmm. And once we start to look at it, I mean, it's once you start to really study it, I mean, it is absolutely have and have not. And the have nots is a very large group when we talk about consistent, reliable mm-hmm. access to internet. Yeah, and I and I think the pandemic really made people examine their assumptions about students and the regions you're in. Um, for instance, Norfolk, Virginia is, you know, an urban area, uh, but you go five minutes out and you are now in the country. Um, we literally have peanut farmers around here. And our students hit the spectrum of access. And when they were home helping families, they could not. It's not simple to just drive into a Starbucks and sit in their parking lot. So uh, I think I think folks were, were pretty shocked because they just had this assumption that all students could they just go to the library. It's no problem. And it's, well, no, it's not it's not the reality for a lot of our students. And here at, at ODU, I think it, I, I think the statistics is something like one in four students are responsible for a dependent. You know, so we have a lot of parents and a lot of working students. And so that idea that you can just um, kind of flippantly go somewhere and and pony off of someone's uh, (laughs) Wi-Fi and you have technology that can keep up with all the changing software and that you have the time to learn that evolving software um, is is a lot. Well, and also, you know, from an ethical standpoint, since we are talking about our digital ethics, the idea that we would build a university system Mm -hmm. that relies on students ponying off of Starbucks internet (laughs) is also deeply problematic, right? If you're going to expect students to do work that involves the internet, then you need to put in the time to make sure that you have considered the structural issues um, around students having access to the internet, not like, hey, go to Starbucks. Yeah, this is not a Starbucks uh, stand episode either. Um. <laughs> <laughs> this is not no, but I do think that, that point that it is it tends people think about it in all these different ways as if like oh if if you're in an urban space it'll be fine or if you're in this space you'll be fine or if I think like as our examples show it is across the board it doesn't actually matter what your sort of regional geographical context is um this is a problem for students everywhere is meaningful. Yeah. So I want, um, Hey Liz, you had mentioned something earlier that I wanted to sort of go back to. I mean, this is fascinating. And you had mentioned that after, um, you know, people, the campus opened up again, people come back and during COVID, you know, lots of people figured out how to help and sort of came up with new ways of helping people and whatnot. And then I know now that many schools, as they come back, they're navigating a brand new set of structure because they are saying, well, you know, we don't want you to just teach um, in person or online. We want you to do both, um, right? So there's the hybrid, high flex, et cetera, you know, these, these different models of teaching and learning. People's jobs have changed. And sometimes, and I was talking to... David Hubert, uh, whom you probably all know, and he's actually he was. This was one of the. Um, this was our season three's, you know, um, uh, first episodes, and he was saying, "Hey, look, we are doing technically the same job, meaning we have the same title, but we're doing a really different job than what we did before. Sometimes we're doing a lot more um, than what we were doing before, and you know, sort of 
And I want to go back to our digital, one of oh, the yeah. digital ethics is on labor. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, people's jobs have changed. Um, so we're recording this on Rosh Hashanah. It's the Rosh Hashanah holiday. And so uh, in CUNY schools, that means that we are off. And so my students do not have class today. However, because today is Rosh Hashanah and next week is Yom Kippur, a group of students that I work with will not be seeing me for three Tuesdays. Um, so it'll be three weeks between the time that I see them again. And so in the old days, right, it would have been like, here's your syllabus, like maybe here's an assignment. <laughs> Good luck with that. And I'll see you when we, when we, when we meet again. Um, and now I, I have recorded a video for them. I have created an inquiry activity. I have created a digital reading guide for them uh, to support them in the time between uh, when we will be in person again. So in that instance, right, I think the things that I have learned and the new ways that I think about my classroom and the, the flexibility of my classroom is really, really good. On the other hand, I think a lot of us are doing many, 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 many more jobs than we did before under the umbrella of our one job. Um, and we really need to talk about that labor and how that labor is supported and what that looks like on our campuses. Because people are also, I think, understandably burned out after the pandemic and after working um, basically on demand for two plus years. Um, so where do you, where is the, the continued labor really important in multiple venues and where is it time to roll it back or support people in a different way? And I think that is an emerging conversation. Um, and I'm sure we can all talk about that on our campuses and I'm sure it looks really different, but I think it's an important conversation to be having. Who's doing the work? How's the work being supported? Um, and what is the sustainability of the labor practice? This concludes part two of our conversation. To hear part three, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.